Good evening, everyone. Let's uh, let's get this show on the road. It's uh, it's uh, again, once again, it's Wednesday, and it's 9 uh, p.m. and we're all crossed out. <laughs> it's another <laughs> extra uh, super this week. <laughs> yes, another uh, another grueling, another grueling one of these weeks. You know, slogging through the economy and the war and Morbius. You know, all the global <laughs> disasters going on. <laughs> Uh, we actually, it's funny, like, we actually haven't seen, as I, I only know that Morbius is bad by osmosis, by osmorbiuses, um, but uh, I, I actually ca- kind of can't wait to, to see it, like, uh, you know, like on home release. I do I do bad movie nights with friends, and we kind of make fun of, uh, of movies, and so, yeah, I'm, um, I'm looking forward to being able to do that. Uh, how's it going, Jane? Um, it's going. <laughs> it's, 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 I've made it to Wednesday at 9 p.m., so I'm feeling good about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's actually, it's true. Like, I think it's, uh, there's something uh, positive about putting this at the tail end of hump day. I fucking hate calling it hump day, but like, <laughs> so it's like we're already, we're already uh, on the down slope towards the end of the week, right? And so uh, it's it's always nice to be like, all right, all right, okay, I guess we're over the we're over the peak now. We can see the we can see the other side of the mountain. Yeah, especially now that I actually work Monday through Friday, so now Wednesdays actually mean to me what they've always meant to everybody else. So it's kind of like, oh yeah, now it's a Thursday, and then it's Friday, and then it's the weekend. Yeah, so there you go. And so, uh, yeah, there's uh, I guess th- there's all kinds of random small things to talk about. I guess we were gonna. Uh, we were gonna, I, you know, the the name of the episode and the thing that we're gonna, I guess, devote the the lion's share, I guess, of of time to, is uh, is this uh, you know recent example or examples of uh, of Biden. I think we mentioned this before. I can't remember if we mentioned it here or just on the the other pod, but um, the idea that uh, that Biden uh, his style is very impulsive. Uh, and that his uh, his comfort zone is to speak as though he's just one of the regular guys. I call it his regular Joe routine. Uh, and then the need for his people to kind of play clean up a little bit and try to try to like uh, uh, repair the, sort of the the damage that it might have caused because you know he's the, he's the president. You know he can't just like uh, because. Be, People have this obsessive focus now on on uh, wrongness and rightness, accuracy. Meaning, and this happened in, during uh, Trump's administration a lot, where he would say something, and I would criticize it, and people would say, "But he's not wrong." And my reaction to that would be, "Yes, but he's you, he's the president. Like you say that all you want. You say I don't know, screw." Doug. 
that this person should be fired or LeBron sucks or whatever. If the president says like LeBron sucks, that's that's bad. Like you don't want the president to be like weighing in on dumb shit like that, right? Right. And the the situation at hand right now is that Joe Biden came out publicly. I, I don't know. Was he giving a presser or was it like an offhand thing? I don't even know in what situation he was. Saying this, I think but- he, what, I think it was as you as you uh, as you apply even worse than that. I think it was like a it was like a, as he was walking, it was like a gaggle thing. I think so. But he he specifically referred to the war in Ukraine as a genocide, which to be fair, I have also called it a genocide on the pod. But I I am not the president of the United States. Correct. Correct. And that's what the thing we were talking about is the idea of like the weight of presidential power behind everything you said. Because we were saying this exact thing about the previous time that he said this where he called Mm -hmm. Putin a war criminal. And uh, and my problem with uh, calling him a war criminal, which also extends to this idea of genocide, is like what do you do? If next week Zelensky and Putin say, okay, we're going to sign a peace agreement and everything's going to be fine, how do you go to be to do business as usual or as somewhat usual with someone you called a war criminal and claimed they were committing genocide? Like, how does that make you look now? What are you going to say? Oh, I was mad and I spoke in the moment, which is what they're saying. You know, they're, the State Department people are like, he spoke from the heart. That's the new thing now. They always say he spoke from the heart. And then even Biden himself said, it seems later his cleanup was like he said, like, I don't take it back to his credit, by the way. He doesn't take the shit back. He like he excuses it, but he at least says, no, I said what I said. But here's why I said it. I don't think his explanation is is satisfactory, but at least he's not gaslighting people and saying that's not like the thing that happened with Eric Adams now where they, you know, after that New York shooting where a reporter asked him, like, should we put Metal detectors in the subways? And he said yes. And then his comms teams were like, no, he was not talking about metal detectors. He was talking about innovative technology to prevent the thing. (laughs) It was like, come on, man. Don't insult our intelligence. And so at least Biden isn't doing that. All he said, but, but he said something like, it seemed, it sure seems like it to me, but it's up to the lawyers to decide if it matches them. Because the thing is, when you accuse somebody of genocide, that's not a thing that just comes in a vacuum. That means now sanctions, international sanctions, criminal court getting involved, all kinds of stuff like that. And so if you or I say that, whatever, right? The president says that. Now all of a sudden there's like things that need to happen. Yeah. It's like at this point, it's like, okay, we can do the whole Joe Biden. Like, come on, man. It just it, it just looks like a genocide. Come on, come on man. But there, there's also if the president of the United States – feels like the situation in Ukraine is a genocide and he feels like Putin is a war criminal, there does come along expectations with that. Like, okay, so if this is how you really feel, are you, say, going to NATO and pressuring them to get involved because you, president of the United States, think that this is a genocide and that Putin is a war criminal? And does that now mean that you think NATO should get involved? Does this now think that you think the U.S. should take a more direct involvement in this beyond what we've already done? Because, again, you you use the G word. You said genocide like that's that's not something to take lightly. I mean, the last time there was a genocide, which this has somehow been memory hold, even though it happened in my lifetime, was back in 1999. Well, 
it ended in 1999 and went through the entire 90s, but during the Bosnian Wars and the Baltic Wars, and then eventually NATO did get involved, and they ended up basically just bombing the shit out of Serbia until they stopped genociding people. Yeah. Well, and JD also in chat now mentions the Rwandan genocide, which he says mm-hmm. under UN protocols, Clinton was not allowed to call Rwanda genocide. Because if you say that, then you have to do something, right? It's like, yeah. and and, uh, and Super 7 says, uh, it's very reminiscent of the public and private position thing to me. Like he's just sharing his private position publicly. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> it's like Biden's Twitter account says like, my opinions are personal and do not reflect the <laughs> the opinions of my employer, which happens to also be me. Me. <laughs> yes, me. I'm my own boss. I'm the president. I'm my own boss. I mean, I guess technically I work for the American people, but I am effectively my own boss. Um, yeah. And so, uh, again, there is a – and unfortunately, like, this, this, uh, this does resonate with some people. I just still think that it's – that's not – who you're saying this to like you're not trying to impress tom nichols by calling it a genocide right this is something that you're saying to the world you want putin to hear that and so the fact that some pundits like in washington will say like he said what we're all thinking and it's like yes Yes. he did sure he did right but so what and i i laughed because um there's a tweet of biden's uh, from before the election or something like that. And it says something like, when I'm president, you won't have to worry about my tweets. And I said, yeah, but we have to worry about your mouth. Like you're doing what Trump did, except not on Twitter. You're just saying it out loud. Yeah. Um, and there is, again, Trump, the thing about Trump is like, it's it's so hard to to compare him because there was something so, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm, I'm going to like avoid the hyperbole here, but I'm going to say that there was something so outside of the norm for Trump. Like, cause people can act like Trump and still be like politician-y. Like DeSantis is a good example of someone who has kind of that Trump brashness and that idea of like, yeah, screw the media, fake news or whatever. But he's still like a politician. Like he will still go to like a debate and probably like debate like a like a politician debates and not turn it into a circus or whatever. But Biden does have a lot of the qualities that Trump had. And one of them is this, this idea that like he just says shit and then like everybody has to like clean up on aisle nine, you know, as yeah. he like Godzilla's through there. <laughs> it's just like instead of calling somebody fat and ugly and stupid – he says, you know, he's a war criminal who does genocide. You know, like that's the <laughs> that's the utterance. Instead of calling Ted Cruz's wife ugly, mm-hmm. you know, he calls uh, Putin a war criminal. And actually, this all reminded me of a Lindsey Graham tweet that kind of was very, very big for like 15 minutes. And then we all moved on. But he made a tweet basically saying that somebody should assassinate Putin, which, oh, again, yeah. yes, I've said that on the pod. But I don't know anybody in the CIA and I am not a sitting member of Congress. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's that, that's exactly right. I think he was a, he 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 was like a, he was like a fan ficting about some general taking the initiative and like putting a bullet in his head. Yeah, sure. And you're Which, right. Yes, please. But, you know, exactly. Please. But that, that <laughs> that's a great that's that's that is actually a great way to put it. And uh, and even Lindsey Graham 
is not the president. And I remember, by the way, when Trump was president and I was saying something like, oh, Trump shouldn't say this. And people said, yeah, well, Nancy Pelosi said it. And I said, yes, even Nancy Pelosi is not Trump. Trump is the president and everything runs downhill from there, including, you know, uh, uh, the, you know, the House, uh, the Speaker of the House, who's the, you know, the most prominent member of Congress and the, you know, third and or fourth and third in line for the presidency yeah. or whatever. Even she is not the president, and it's actually worse. If she and Trump do the same thing, it's worse that Trump did it because he's the president. But that same standard applies to Biden now. He is the president, and people, Republicans can say shit that he can't say, even though they're in Congress or the Senate or whatever, because he's the guy. And when you have the president's, out here saying that Putin is a war criminal and this is genocide. And if something should happen to Putin and he magically appears dead in his bed, you already know what the conspiracy class is going to say. It's going to be regime change. And he said that he was a war criminal and he was doing genocide. And so therefore the CIA killed Putin. Like, you know, that's what it's going to be spun up into. Yes. I mean, I, I, again, unless it, it'll be like an open coup, right? Not mm-hmm. Putin just shows up dead, right? Because that could be very dangerous. Again, if Russian high command thinks that, you know, we assassinated Putin in his bed, that's not good for us at all. Because if if that was a viable... You know, because they then they would get really spooked. Because imagine, imagine, you know, whatever, like, let's say that we're at war, you know, like we're in these tensions with Russia. And let's say Biden all of a sudden dies of polonium poisoning or Novichok. You know, they find Novichok in his blood or whatever. It could be the CIA that did it, right? (laughs) But, like, we're probably going to assume it was the Russians, right? And that's, that would be highly bad for them. And so I have a feeling that if anybody even suggested that in some meeting, like, why don't we just kill him? The answer would be like, what are you fucking crazy? All of a sudden their president like dies of poisoning. They're going to fucking nuke Ukraine or us. or I don't know what, <laughs> but like, that's, that's a, and by the way, I think we mentioned this uh, in another context when people said, why isn't Russia, uh, 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 why isn't there like Russian air, uh, overwhelming Russian air superiority in Ukraine? They should have, by all accounts, they should have been able to do it. And they didn't even like bring the forces they can to bear. And I think uh, we said on the pod that a reason for that could be that he may, did a math. He did the math and he said, if I do that, that might push them to do something more escalatory. And yeah, sure, I'll lose some helicopters and I'll lose some jets by not doing that. But the cost of, you know, clearing the skies of anything Ukrainian could be greater to me in the long run. So I'll I'll sacrifice some of my own people for that. Uh, and in that same sense... They often say, you know, because in Israel, there's always this debate of like, why don't we just bomb Assad's palace or whatever? And, mm-hmm. the, and, and the thing is, yes, he's very bad. But at some point, something like that becomes a somewhat known quantity. And you're risking like, uh, you know, he's not if you assassinate Assad tomorrow, he's not going to be replaced by somebody good. Right. He's going to be replaced by somebody at least equally bad and also an unknown quantity on top of that. 
you know, the evil you know, the evil you don't know. That They said that about Saddam and they say that about Iran, right? And so there is a, it's this weird ballet. It's this weird, it's this weird dance, right? Because like we can, we can send Ukraine some types of weapons, but other types of weapons are too escalatory. But it's like, and we're, we're all a wit, like it's, it's weird, right? Because like Russian helicopters are being shot down by British uh, you know, by by British man pads, but that's fu- like, but Russia isn't at war with Britain or whatever. You know, it's like it's this weird thing where we all kind of know what's going on, but it's this, yeah, like I said, it's this ballot, it's this kabuki theater where some levels of interference are like tolerated because what are you going to do? Because Russia's also in this bind. Because yeah, we're sending them shoulder rockets. What are you going to do? Bomb us? No, he doesn't want he doesn't want to make that first move too. It's like sort of a game of chicken, right? The question is who will consider the other side's moves so escalatory that a direct attack is now on the table. And nobody wants to do that, but nobody also doesn't want to do anything. So we're just kind of trickling, we're doing a little things, we're testing the margins, all that crap, including stuff like Sweden and NATO, all these talks about who's going to join NATO, is Ukraine going to join the EU, all that. And a lot of it is just talk, by the way. That's why I don't like jump because people say, oh, now Finland's going to join NATO and Sweden's going to join NATO. And I think a lot of that is also part of this theater, like, oh, maybe we will, Putin. Mm, I don't know. We're going to talk about it in June. Maybe we will join NATO. And then there'll be a NATO country on your border. How about that? Right? And and maybe and, and then you wait and see what that does. But there is a seriousness to that, too, because NATO has said that they would be happy to have both Sweden and Finland. The EU has made overtures of like, OK, we are going to speed up Ukraine joining the European Union. So it's not simply just posturing. It does seem like there is real movement going on, which I've made the joke on Twitter that NATO needs to just make a trophy for Putin for being like the number one recruiter of 2022, because my God, is this not going the way that it's supposed to go for him? I mean, like, unfortunately, off very often, you know, a, a crisis is a thing that produces stuff like that. We were talking about how potentially COVID could lead to like a, an mRNA type pharmaceutical revolution in the same way that World War II led to like a technology revolution. There, I, there was also another, I, I, w- I, was just got, I just got into like an argument about this on Twitter with someone who was like, uh, who was talking about, you know, like the space race, like uh, we, we could have, instead of going to the moon, we should have used that money to build the roads and the schools. And it's just like, first of all, like you don't even understand like, solar energy like the you know usable solar energy has a needs a owes a huge debt of gratitude to the nasa mm-hmm. space program and also i looked into it just for the fun of it and in adjusted like 2022 dollars the the cost of a the apollo 11 mission is like a less than half of what we spend on infrastructure now every year we spend like four hundred and fifty uh, billion dollars on infrastructure every year, and the in adjusted dollars, Apollo Eleven costs under two hundred billion, like one hundred ninety four or something like that. And so it's like, and and all of the stuff that came out of it, MRI, MRIs, MRIs yeah. came from the space program, all sorts of materials, technology, water recycling, all kinds of crap like that. It's uh, it's secondary, and also I I am also always a huge proponent of uh, looking at things on a civilizational level 
Because, yeah, you think, like, what did going to the moon? Literally, the literal going to the moon. What did that do, right? But that's not the way you look at it. You look at it as, like, this was a massive engineering and technological problem. And the solutions that we came up to solve this problem proved useful in a billion other ways, right? And so I think that uh, setting ourselves, like, humanity... A, uh, a an almost insurmountable challenge like that brings out the best in us. And so, yeah, like a thing like you want to cure a pandemic or I don't know what. Um, because all of a sudden people don't mind spending infinite money on it and, and doing it instantly, not sitting through committees for years. And it's just like, yeah, do it now, 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 now. Yeah, and I think there's an immediacy to that where like when you spend money on, say, the Apollo mission and – 50 years later, there's all this tech that is now commonplace in society. You kind of don't see that in the way that like, okay, we do, we're going to do an infrastructure bill. And then like, you see the road being repaved and you see like the bridge being redone. And then it's like a little more immediate because it's like, okay, we, we did, we passed the infrastructure bill. And like six months later, like this bridge down the street from my house is getting rebuilt. Like, I think there's a bit of an immediacy problem to that where people don't realize when you invest long-term into like the government developing technologies like they did with the Apollo program and all of the NASA space programs. And then all of that slowly trickles down into just everyday tech that we use. Like you don't really see yeah. it in that tang. way. We wouldn't have had Tang for the, <laughs> the space pen. <laughs> Hey, I, I love freeze-dried ice cream, so I ain't even going to be mad about that. There you go. You got me meals in the tube, all that kind of stuff, yes. powdered, powdered food. Um, and so, wow, we, we got way off uh, course here. Uh, <laughs> As but, always. Yeah, I know. I think about all the innovative technology that Eric Adams is going to come up with to prevent subway shootings. <laughs> you know? It's going to be an amazing. That I, guy was arrested, by the way. They um, they caught yeah. him. Uh, amazingly, he... he, he uh, he was on the lam for a long time. New York is not an easy place to like be on the lam in. You know, I mean, it's easy to like if you're if you're so wanted and your pictures everywhere. You think like New York, it's impersonal and it's easy to like fade into the crowd. But like, go to New York. There's like there's people are looking at you everywhere. It's crowded mm -hmm. and you can't. And so if 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 people are on the lookout for you. It seems like it would be very difficult. I don't know how he even got into into the city from from uh, from Brooklyn. Very strange. Um, but uh, yeah, that was just a, a thing that that just happened. Um, and uh, yeah, I I mean, what what more is there to say about this? Uh, it's just the, this idea of like uh, a, a kind of an irresponsible shooting from the hip uh, with Biden uh, that. I, that's definitely not non-ideal, you know. They're like I, I'm, I'm saying for his, t for like for his people, it's obviously non-ideal for us. But but even his people, I can tell because there isn't really a lot of excuse making that they can make for him. It's they're basically going with the take him seriously but not literally uh, uh, line of defense, right? Which again ties into my. Uh, my argument that there is something very Trumpy about him, except that Biden is very normative in the like political sense. Um, but yeah, but I mean, Trump 
a lot of Trump's qualities were a politician's qualities, the ego and the whatever, whatever. But it also came with this sort of uh, layer of kind of non-political brashness and like in your faceness that a, someone with a career, because you can't develop a career in politics being like that. You got to come from the top, right? Because all these people, all these like Mike Pence and all they like they came up through like local politics yeah. and then into like mid level politics and all you gotta campaign all sorts of things, a city council and all I know about that. And you would never get through all of that shit being a Trump. Like you gotta like be a huge guy on the side and then come into the presidential yeah. race being someone who's been in the public eye already for forty years. Yeah, you gotta go from being like Famous to being the president and you yeah. can't make any stops in between. Like you yeah. can't stop in Congress or being a governor or anything like that. You got to go straight to the top. Yeah. And by the way, a lot of people, uh, I'm going to be very vague about this, but a lot of people uh, who spent their lives, you know, building a career in uh, stuff like political campaigning and political comms had their entire like the, the you know their entire like knowledge base essentially like thrown in the dumpster because along comes this Godzilla right this like bull in a china shop who like uh, you know doesn't obey the rules of comms and doesn't obey the rules of campaigning and the success and failure of that strategy is totally arbitrary sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't work and these people who like have a very set idea of like how you present messaging and what kind of messaging succeeds and who gonna all of a sudden like they're being ignored and what they know it doesn't matter. I I um as someone who knows people who work on the hill, uh there was a lot of rotation. There's a lot of rotation anyway, but like especially the Trump era caused a lot of people to be like, I need a year in the private sector. I cannot take this mm-hmm. anymore, right? And it was partly was because of that. I mean, there was also like the toxicity of politics in general. But yeah, also the idea that like you think you know the job and all of a sudden like your job changes instantly into something totally different. Yeah, and it's just working conditions on the Hill and pay and all of that factors into it too. But I can imagine already being in a position where it's like, okay, I'm like this low paid staffer and now I've got to deal with this bullshit right here. And I'm going to be like, I, I too, I'd be like, you know, Fuck this shit. Maybe I'll come back after this guy's gone. Maybe I'll stay in the private sector. Yeah, and, yeah, I, and I, I and I, I've told you this privately. Like I, I know, I, I know that the specifically, I know that the Kavanaugh hearings were the breaking point for a lot of people because, like, if you're a senator, you have like the thickest fucking skin, especially if you're like a long term senator. I keep mentioning Mitch McConnell. I think like Mitch McConnell, nothing phases Mitch McConnell ever, right? No. But if you're a Mitch McConnell comms guy who's 25 or whatever and you're just trying to build a career in politics, that stuff is withering and soul-crushing and you can't take it. Yeah, especially when you're especially when you're on comms. Like you're the one that gets sent out to get the shit beat out of you. Yeah. So. And you're also like on Twitter getting mm-hmm. dogpiled with your yeah. small account that has like 2,000 followers or whatever. <laughs> you're not – it's just it's it's it uh, it, uh, it became exceedingly difficult to be a hill staffer um, because of sort of the 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 trans how public how in the public eye you are now just being just a dude who in the past mm-hmm. used to just like issue a press statement from the office of so and so and now it's like you on Twitter trying to fight the world. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and so uh, I guess uh, I guess we can uh, we can move on to uh, yeah. 
to uh, and we even mentioned the shooting, so like we don't even have to talk about that. We can talk about something really sad, which is, <laughs> or 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 we can we can use it to you know we can uh, we can use it as a tribute and just tell awful jokes about how Gilbert Gottfried died. It's funny, like I see when a comedian like that dies, and I see jokes about it. Uh, to me, that's the best tribute. Like, I don't think it's offensive. And I think especially someone like a Norm MacDonald or a Bob Saget or a Gilbert Gottfried would really appreciate a joke told, like, at, you know, at their wake or one of my favorite uh, uh, examples of this is when the comedian Patrice O'Neill died. This is like uh, 10 years ago at this point. Yeah. Um, he was a big staple on the Opie and Anthony show. And they, the day after he died, brought in all of their comedian friends to do like a, essentially like a wake, like a radio wake. And mm-hmm. it turned into like a funny thing. And Dave Attell, the comedian, Dave Attell, because Patrice O'Neill was like a big fat guy, like 350 pounds, six yeah. something like a giant guy. And, you know, and dre- and like drove a yellow Humvee and like, you know, dressed like a pimp or whatever. Like it had this sort of style. And David Tell, they were saying like, oh, we're going to do a fundraiser for his family or whatever. And David Tell said something like, come on, you cheapskates. We, uh, we got to buy a purple suit and a gigantic coffin. <laughs> and everybody <laughs> lost it. And I remember like I was really sad when he because I used to love listening to him or whatever. But that, and I remember how hard I laughed at that in the moment. And everyone agreed like he would have loved that. Yeah. That would like, have been his favorite. He would have laughed his ass off at that. Exactly. And so I saw I saw all kinds of funny jokes about Gilbert Gottfried and or, or there was the because I posted the picture of like uh, there's a, a, a picture of uh, of a norm. Bob Saget, Gilbert Gottfried, and Jeff Ross all at a table. Jeff Ross is still alive, but like I posted a picture and I said, man, this picture makes me sad. And all it was was people making Jeff Ross jokes. Like somebody <laughs> said, like, don't worry, Jeff Ross will be dead soon too. <laughs> all kinds of stuff like that. My favorite joke was like someone said, who's that guy on the right? And someone said, that's the guy who has alopecia but doesn't bitch about it. Because <laughs> he does. He has alopecia, I think. <laughs> There was a, a bunch of those. And Gilbert Gottfried specifically, like I said, I think Gilbert Gottfried did one of the bravest things I've ever seen a comedian do ever, which was he did the Hugh Hefner roast, which happened two weeks after 9-11. And the first joke he told was a 9-11 joke. Mm-hmm. He said something like, I was trying to catch a flight. I'm not going to do my Gilbert Gottfried. <laughs> it's, it's impossible. But yeah. he said something like, I couldn't find a direct flight. The only one I found passed through the World Trade Center or something. And there was this like awkward hush. And then somebody yells, too soon from the audience or whatever. And then he launches into like a, a like a, a horrid rendition of the aristocrats. Like he did not give any fucks. And I loved it. I loved that he was like that. Yeah, he was really one of the last comedians who like – if you were a teenager in the 90s or if you were in your 20s in the 90s, he was kind of like that pop culture icon. But he was also one of the last ones who would just be scathing in public. Like he would just he could do a roast like he would fucking just cut you like the one that he did at Joan Rivers is just it's hilarious. But it's like, damn, dude, <laughs> you went hard yeah. on I mean, all she laughed their ass off. Yeah, all, too because all, that's how she all was. three of those guys, uh, Saget, uh, Norm, and him, were very good roasters. I mean, Norm McDonald, when he, at the roast of Bob Saget, did this mm-hmm. sort of legendary routine that's all like 
the cleanest, dumbest jokes ever. <laughs> yeah, some people say Bob Saget is uh, great. I think he's a great waste of time. You know, it's all jokes <laughs> like that. And Bob Saget is dying because he knows it's all deliberate, right? It's all these, like, the most clean dad jokes ever. <laughs> Just a genius. And, like I, I, like, I think a lot of people, like, didn't get it except for all of the comedians there. You know, there's a... There's a, a saying, I don't know who, I don't know whose quote this is, but I hear comedians say it a lot. And the, the, the quote is to make a regular person laugh, you take someone, you dress them like an old lady and you push them down the stairs to make a comedian laugh. You push an actual old lady down the stairs. <laughs> it's, not, it's not good enough to pretend it has to be an actual old lady. Um, and, uh, but yeah, like really sad, all three of them in their sixties, all three of them, yeah. didn't, cause comedians often. Uh, you know, are, uh, are uh, you know, are, are troubled, are tortured and, you know, drugs and alcohol yeah. are a very common cause of death and, and mm -hmm. uh, suicide, unfortunately, as well. Um, but the three of none, none of them were apparently uh, Gilbert Gottfried's cause of death was he had a heart attack that was the result of some heart condition that he had, myocardia something. I, I read the, yeah. the term was too long for me to, to remember. Um, and... Uh, uh, Bob Saget's death is still shrouded like, in slight mystery. I still think he probably slipped and fell in the shower, hit yeah. his head really hard, thought like, yeah, whatever, you know, took an Anvil to and went to bed and, and never woke up. That's that's yeah. sort of my my read on it from like, you know, because... It, yeah, it definitely doesn't seem like it was like drugs or alcohol or suicide or anything. It seems like some freak accident where it caused a brain bleed and that's how it happens sometimes. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, yeah. And, and, and so you got these, these three guys who like definitely had more years in them. Gilbert Gottfried's podcast was still going strong. Mm -hmm. Bob Saget was on tour when he died. Like, meaning yeah. like not, these aren't people who like retired and are away from the, the public eye. They're yeah. still working. Yeah, just really. And Norma's still working too. Yeah, it's just all, just all really sad. And um, but again, like I said, the tributes were amazing, and I, I do think that there is something kind of affirming in the fact that like someone so legendary dies, and like people honor him in the same way that like you play somebody's. If a musician dies, people play their music, and so yeah, you're not like necessarily like telling the jokes that they told, but in the spirit of the fact that they always rib each other. You tribute him by saying something funny about him instead of just saying like, oh, I'm so sad, R.I.P., right? Yeah, because you know he would think it was fucking funny. Like Absolutely. if somebody told just like a really cutting joke about Godfrey after he died – Godfrey would laugh his ass off if you could see it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and yeah, it's also funny that like a, a whole generation of people just know him from Aladdin <laughs> <laughs> or the Aflac commercials. I can't remember. He got fired as the Aflac duck for some joke that he told. I'm going to look yeah. it up as you talk. I forget what it was, but it's also Godfrey kind of was in that same thing as like Bob Saget where there's like – the, the general knowledge of him, like for Bob Saget, everybody knew him from Full House. And people knew Gilbert Godfrey from like Aladdin and being in those guys or the Affleck commercials and being kind of like that pop culture icon, like the guy with the funny voice. But like the reason the, the Norm MacDonald roast of Bob Saget works so well 
is because the, the whole point of doing those jokes super clean was making fun of the fact that everybody thought Bob Saget was just like this super clean, just the guy from Full House. But like as a stand-up comedian, he was incredibly filthy. The the um my first introduction to the real Bob Saget was his cameo in Half Baked when uh, when Dave Chappelle goes to rehab. <laughs> And he, he announces to rehab that he's there for weed. Bob Saget gets up and goes, I used to suck dick for coke. Did you suck dick for weed or whatever? It's just like, was that, was that Danny Tanner? Like, yes, it was. <laughs> By the way, Gilbert Gottfried got fired for jokes about the, the Japanese tsunami. Oh, and I was just, I was just reading them and like, with my hand over my mouth. I'm not going to repeat them because I don't want to get canceled. <laughs> Look it up. He told jokes about the Japanese tsunami. Um, when it happened, I guess. Jesus Christ. It's like, uh, I always say this about Anthony Jeselnik. That's his thing, right? He tells the, the, the most awful joke he can think of right as an awful thing happens. Mm-hmm. But that's his thing, right? Although... Yeah. If you watch, um, I can't remember which one of his specials, he closes it out with like a 20-minute bit about that and about how he almost got fired once for a a joke that he told about, I think it was the Aurora shooting or something like that. (laughs) I know, right? It's like, we're talking like, he's hardcore, right? He's not. Yeah. Yes. And he said something like, uh, they threatened to fire him and he said, go ahead. But the thing that caused him to delete it was that they threatened to cancel his show and fire all his staff. And he was like, yeah, yeah." he's like, I don't want to cost somebody else their job. Me, whatever. I'm, I'm the master of my own, whatever. Yeah. But, um, uh, yeah, his, (laughs) he, he has the most amazing jokes. He has his joke. He says, I was at a bar and I met this woman, beautiful woman, and I asked her what she does. And she said, uh, I'm a surgeon. And he said, wow, I had no idea women could be ironic. He's going to tell uh, Jesselnik jokes all, uh, all, uh, all evening. Um, yeah. I think, uh, I, so yeah, whatever. R.I.P. Gilbert Gottfried, I guess. If you guys want to. If you can go find it. Oh, wait, here we go with the Jesselnik joke. I don't believe in too soon. I'm on a tight schedule is the... <laughs> That's very funny. That's very good. Um, the Aristocrats. It's a documentary about a famous joke called The Aristocrats, mm-hmm. which uh, if you don't know the joke, um, go look it up. <laughs> go look up the, the version that Gilbert Gottfried told that the Hugh Hefner roast. Um, and also uh, to me, it's always funny because, um, if you go watch that movie, um, Robin Williams tells a joke in it. He calls the reverse aristocrats Mm -hmm. that like, if he were still alive today, he would definitely get canceled over (laughs) because, uh, he uses the N word in it. (laughs) I mean, for one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, an amazing documentary about, you know, like the world's filthiest joke, essentially. 
Yeah. Um, Robin Williams was another one that had that sort of pop culture persona of being the very nice, clean, oh, he's the guy from Mrs. Doubtfire and Dr. Patch and all that stuff. But as a stand-up comedian, he wasn't as filthy as Bob Saget. But, I mean, he used to openly talk about doing coke and all kinds of other sorts of raunchy jokes. So it's like, again, it's another one of those where it's like you had this very different stand-up career versus your acting TV slash movie career. And it's just, it's kind of funny. It, it used you know what? That used to be normal. That used to be normal. You had like a Dennis Leary who would have like a, you know, like a, a, a normal cable show. He was on uh, rescue me, which is a show that he created for FX mm-hmm. about firefighters and stuff. And at the same time, he and the other uh, Boston comedians that he would bring on that show would go in a comedy club and say shit that would like make hair grow on your palms or whatever, <laughs> right? And now you can't, you can't really do that. Like you can't be, uh, you can't be like mainstream you and comedy club you kind of like that. That that thing kind of spills over. Uh, 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 Kevin Hart was someone who was not allowed to be that. Yeah. Who's not allowed to be that, and also uh, Tracy Morgan to cert- to a certain extent, you know, who had jokes about like if my son was gay, I would murder him or whatever, all kinds of crap like that. Um, while he, you know, at at that uh, that was like at the time when he was like developing like a a mainstream career, that was before his uh, his accident. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, when he made a movie with he made Cop Out with Bruce Willis and all kinds of stuff like that. But yeah, like uh, currently, you can't you can't have that dual life. You can't be a mainstream person who also, in a in an agreed upon environment, goes way over the line. Uh, I I I kind of hate that. I kind of hate that because I think I mean I think a comedy club is no different from when you go watch a movie. You go watch you know. Leonardo DiCaprio play a slave owner in Django Unchained. Comedians literally call it my act, right? That's literally what it's called. They say I'm working on my act, right? But because it's like not a play, it's a, it's a, they, it's, it's jokes. Then somehow like it's their, they're actually bearing their soul and not just like telling jokes, you know, whatever. I, 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 to me, there's a disconnect. Also, there used to be like people used to understand that the way a stand-up comedian was on stage was often like a crafted persona, and, and even like marketed in that way. And I'm thinking about like the Jeff Foxworthy's of the world and Larry the Cable Guy, and even like guys like Andrew Dice Clay and stuff like yeah, that. It was, a, it was a created persona. Like this isn't how these people actually are in real life. Yes, this is just exactly. their their on stage acts basically yes. yeah andrew dice clay is a really good example of that where he he would literally like walk on with the jacket and the, uh, yeah. uh, hickory dickory dock you know all that crap but yeah. um uh and, he, and and like i said i i to me there's like a disconnect at some point when i argue with people about that you sometimes hit a wall where they don't – some people do not accept that. They do not accept this idea that like a bunch of adults can agree to like set aside you know, all limits for 45 minutes and just like – and understand that nobody's being serious and we're all just like letting loose. It's almost like an outlet. You know, it's in the same way that like uh, 
like uh, like violent video games, as opposed to making you violent, can actually serve as a, a healthy outlet to violence that you then don't go punch somebody in the face. Yeah. You just shoot a monster in a video game. And so in this sense, like you go laugh at a like a, you know, like a racist or a sexist joke in a comedy club and like you get it out of your system in an environment where like everybody's like, yeah, sure. Let's just laugh about this for half an hour. Um, Because like I, I laugh about jokes that, you know, about Holocaust. I keep telling about the, the, the Ted Alexandros joke about how. Oprah's book club had this book about a couple that met in a concentration camp as kids and then fell in love as adults. And it turns out the whole thing was fake. The Holocaust never happened. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's a, that's a great joke. But if somebody will say to me in an argument, the Holocaust never happened, I wouldn't like think that was funny. Right. But it's like, how do you not understand like the, the scenarios in which this happened? Or Louis C.K.'s joke, say what you want about Hitler, he killed a lot of Jews. <laughs> right? And so, and I say to people, I try to explain to people the, the engine of a joke like that is the, is the blind side, not the topic. The topic is just the, is the surface level of the joke. The actual joke is like you believe somebody's going to say something and then you get hit from the side with something you didn't expect. Like turns out it was all fake. The Holocaust never happened. You think I'm talking about the book and it's true. But like the, the actual story was that the book was fake. The story in the book was fake. It came out that it was fake. But like I'm, I'm expecting a thing and I'm getting something from a different direction. And that that kind of clash is the thing that makes you laugh. Right. Yeah. Anyway, this is uh, I, I find it really hard when I when I'm forced to like explain the mechanics of laughter to people. <laughs> it's like, what are you not a human being? Like, I need to explain to you what like what funny is. I guess so. Um, and uh, we're about forty five minutes in. I think uh, one of the things we intended to do. I don't know if there's. I know at least one person of the listeners here has seen everything everywhere all at once. But uh, I think uh, one of the things that uh, uh, this format can do is like, yeah, if we see a movie or if there's some show that premiered or just ended, uh, it would be nice to hear people's uh, thoughts about it. I don't know if anybody wants to just uh, give a brief uh, impression if they saw everything everywhere. Um, And while people decide if they want to or not, I will also give a recommendation I started watching Severance on Apple TV Plus, which is, by the way, shaping up to be uh, an attractive streaming service. At first, I was like, "How many do we fucking need Apple TV or whatever?" But like, there's there's interesting stuff on it, and this show Severance, a very interesting show, made by uh, Ben Stiller, is the director of this show. Impressing me a lot with his directorial style, by the way. I, you know me, I, I love a good, uh, I love a good framed shot. You know, I watch a movie or a show and like, you know, I'll go like, ah, look at that camera angle. I know I'm going to love this now just because of this one camera angle. You'd be surprised, by the way, how, uh, uh, how uh, indicative something like that is. Like uh, the opening shot of a movie, you'll be like, oh, I can tell this person thought about this right and that usually entails it's very rare that i see a movie that's like magnificently shot but like middling in every other way that's not usually how it works right usually if you're like super crafty about something like it'll it'll extend to all aspects yeah and i'm still 
still kind of processing that movie because there's we we talked about it a bit at the end of the last pod, and I still I have a lot of personal thoughts about it that we won't get into because that touches into a whole bunch of TMI stuff, and y'all don't need to know all that, and you probably don't want to know all of it. Anyway. Probably, but um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, I think, but I I, I think uh, if I had uh, if if I could recommend it to people based on something that's actually not even substantive but more abstract. I would say that it, it's a, it's so it's positive and affirming. And um, there's an anime that's currently running called My Hero Academia. It's very popular with kids. And when people say to me like, uh, "My kid is the twelve or thirteen, and well, they want to watch an anime, what should I recommend?" I say My Hero Academia. The reason is it's really positive. At least like the first couple of seasons that I watched, two or three seasons. And it goes into like the positive ethos of being a hero and what that means. And it's, there is something very like, uh, like I said, affir- life affirming about it. And, and, um, and that serves as a good like role model. It's not nihilist and dark. And I, I mean, I love that shit, right? But I'm also like an adult at this point. Mm-hmm. And it is nice in the landscape to see something where you walk out of and you think like, wow, I really should live my life to the fullest, right? <laughs> As opposed to, <laughs> like, that's a that's a good thought to have walking out of a movie. Like, this movie convinced, I should call my mom and tell her I love her, right? Like, that's, yeah. I mean, that's a, I, I'm sure the director would love to hear a review like that. I walked out of your movie wanting to tell my parents I love them. I think they would think that was amazing. <laughs> More so than if you said, like, this camera angle was amazing right like that's what you want you want that kind of emotion i still really like the deeply absurdist vein of this movie because it's something that you don't see a lot especially in movies anymore and it's i think everybody at this point has made the rick and morty comparison because it does lend itself because it is i mean not just on the on like the multiversal sense but also that embracal of just an extreme level of absurdism and especially the ways in which absurdism is used in this movie it's like it almost kind of tempers a little bit of the more nihilistic scenes because of what you're what you're visually looking at like and i don't want to ruin it for anybody who hasn't seen the movie but there are some scenes that are very dark and like nihilistic and kind of staring into the abyss but how the abyss is visually represented is incredibly absurd. That's a good so point. It's kind of like it, it takes the edge off of it a little bit because you have this moment of like, okay, this is kind of like, do you go, do, do you go down the abyss? Do you let it stare back into you? But the abyss is also this absolutely ridiculous visual representation that you would not think to use for this particular I don't even know how you would describe it, but this particular creation, like, okay, this is just kind of fucking absurd. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, in Harry Potter, they got that, um, they got that, uh, that monster that uh, looks like your fear, and in order to defeat it, you just got to imagine it as like in an absurd situation. I can't remember what it's called. Somebody in chat is probably going to remember what it's called. But like the idea is like, uh, a bogger, thank you. See, I knew somebody would know. Uh, and yeah, like the idea to defeat it is like, you need to imagine it in like an absurd situation. Actually, when you were saying this, I had not thought of this, that 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 was a really good point where it kind of, it, 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 it clowns on the bad stuff, like the bad stuff in it is kind of clowny. And it reminded me of, uh, of Jojo Rabbit, actually a movie that I thought I was going to hate. 
and thought I hated until like the halfway point. And by the end, I was like, this movie's genius and I cannot believe how good it is. And, and, um, and uh, what I thought it was going to do that it didn't do, I thought that it was just going to clown on the Nazis and just be like, mm-hmm. Nazis are dumb, Nazis are stupid. But that's not what it did. It's what Jojo Rabbit is. It's a coming of age movie where childhood is symbolized by Nazism, essentially. <laughs> because Jojo's, uh, uh, Jojo's uh, uh, character arc of maturing uh, involves becoming disillusioned with being like a Nazi youth or whatever. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Lampshade, it does Lampshade it at absurdity because Hitler is his imaginary friend who's played by Taika Waititi who jumps around and, and is like a flowery, effeminate Hitler, right? <laughs> um, but like I said, I thought that was going to be that was going to be all that it was and it actually was not. By the way, Taika Waititi uh, is half Jewish. His name is actually like David Cohen. His name is like Taika David Cohen. Sorry, Waititi. could you say that again? Sorry, I... I wasn't talking to you, Siri. I was like, shut up, Siri. Yeah, I, I was like, what the... You. I got really scared. I was like, what is that? Who's that? Who's talking to me? I, um, I couldn't figure out, well, like, is this my smartwatch or your smartwatch? What's going on? Yeah, I know. It's like, do you want me to dial your ex? No! No! <laughs> <laughs> um... That almost happened to me a few weeks ago. I told Jen where I was like, I was trying to like, I was trying to say something to my nav in the car. I was trying to like navigate to someone. And all of a sudden this series like, do you want me to call your ex? And I'm like, no, no. Oh, no. <laughs> um, Abandon uh, call. Yeah. Shut the car off. <laughs> anyway, I, I, uh, I think Jojo Rabbit's uh, quite great. And it's, and it, and it is part of it is that part of it is the, the idea that it does, it does like, pull back from the really awful parts by making them kind of absurd, but there is more to it than that. Uh, and if it had been just that, I would have been kind of disappointed. Cause I do think that it's a little bit lazy to just be like, Nazis are stupid and they're dumb and stupid. Right. It's just like, no, you gotta, you gotta, yeah, we know. Like, okay, yes, what's... you do more. I mean, you know, fucking Charlie Chaplin did that already. Like, you know, like the great dictator or, mm-hmm. or whatever. It's like, it's like, you're not, you can do more now there. You know, you have an, an opening to do more things. You can, there's more free creative freedom and there's more just creative. Like, don't just do that. Yeah. Um, and I keep mentioning uh, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which uh, my friend who just saw everything everywhere said, like, you really nailed it with Eternal Sunshine in the sense that it's a movie that is not, like, wildly popular. I meet people all the time who have never seen it, some of them don't even know about it at all. But the people who do know it praise it to high heaven and consider it a really... Uh, uh, essentially a perfect movie and it is absurdist and weird and like totally weird shit happens in it but it is also affirming and you know interesting it's sort of it's it's sadder than this movie in a way um but uh again a really uh amazing creative movie that i i cannot recommend enough jim carrey and um uh titanic lady uh not it wasn't right. Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet, yeah. yes. 
Was and it? Also, yes, and Kirsten Dunst is also in it. There's a bunch of people okay, in it. Okay, th- yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Oh, no, she's also, I mean, she's also in it, but the main, yeah. Clementine, who's uh, the main love yeah. interest in it is, uh, yeah. So, um, uh, uh, highly, re- it's it's made by uh, Michelle Gondry, who's a French uh, uh, music video director. I mean, he made a bunch of movies now, but, like, he made a bunch of, like, White Stripes videos. That's kind of <laughs> where most people know him from is all of the various White Stripes videos he made. Um and uh, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of that's sort of all we got to say this week, I guess. Um, we're going to be as you know as normal this Sunday. Yes, Jen, I see you want to say something. Oh no, I was just saying we we had one other potential topic, but I think I do want to save it for Sunday anyway because that 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 deserves a longer discussion of. The, the the Black Lives Matter situation. Oh yes, yes, yes. Oh yeah, we're that, gonna we're gonna deserves, Yeah, that deserves longer conversation. Good point. Yeah, good point. There was a there's there's a whole ongoing thing with Black Lives Matter. Uh, the organization. I was saying today on Twitter, like don't conf- don't confuse Black Lives Matter Inc. You know, with yeah. like with the idea. I, I'll say this in abstract. We don't have to get into it. But I said uh, I'm uh, I, I preach suspicion of an organization that takes the name of a thing that isn't an organization, that starts off as not being an organization. Women's March, the Women's March. It was called the, it was called the Women's March because it was a descriptor. Black Lives Matter is a statement, is, is just, is a statement. And if you take it at face value, it's somebody saying the lives of black people matter, right? But now it's the name of a thing. And the Women's March, which was just a, a, an abstract thing with like, it's a march, women are going to march because it's just, yeah. it's women. And then it became an organization and then it got infiltrated by uh, narrow activists and who were corrupt and who were then. And, and, and where, is, where is the Women's March now? Nowhere. Fucking Thank nowhere. You. Right. Thankfully. Yeah. Well, sure. But, but whatever. I mean, again, the, to me, the interesting thing about the women's March is that it started off being something way more benign than those activists then kind of tried to steer it towards. I remember I was at a bat mitzvah. If you want to like, <laughs> like Jew it up a little. Yeah. I was at a bat mitzvah in New York. And I came back to D.C. on the day of the Women's March. And so I had to ride the train from, like, the train station back to my room with yeah. a subway full of, uh, of pussy hats. And I, it was remarkable to me how nice everybody was uh, talking to people who weren't part of it and were like, what is this and whatever. Yeah. I thought it was going to be big and antagonistic because that's how it kind of was portrayed. Like, we're going to fight Trump. And I was like, yeah, it was packed. There was a billion people and it was like super crowded and whatever. But I thought like, huh, this is just kind of most of these people kind of having fun or whatever. But you would never get that impression listening to like the, the gross, toxic uh, oh activists who kind of elbowed their way to the to the leadership of this, and that exact same thing is happening here. It happened with fucking Occupy Wall Street again. Another thing that started as a statement of intent: Occupy Wall Street, mm-hmm. and now you got like Occupy Democrats. I'm fighting on Twitter with the guy who runs Occupy Democrats, which is a thing that is funded and is an advocacy mm-hmm. fund and is banking on the name of something that's like 15 years old at this point. Yeah. 
It's so weird. And so, yeah, like every, every, like I said, everything that starts as just like a statement of intent that is then appropriated into the name of an actual organization that has 501c3 status that you guys give money to, give those places a law. Don't go near them with like a 20 foot pole. Super sus. Yeah, super sus. But I, I, like I said, I think we could give more time to that on Sunday. Yes, absolutely. Because that that whole situation is sus as fuck. Yes, absolutely. So uh, so stay tuned for that. Um, and uh, yeah, happy Passover if you're a Jew. And uh, Easter Easter is this Sunday, isn't it? Yes, I think so. Okay. Yeah, sounds right. Sure, we'll See, go. With I, that. I, I, I'm, I know, I know the, I know the song of my people. You tell me the song of your people. <laughs> hey, I am not any kind of Catholic. I cannot tell you nothing about it. I've been to church maybe five times in my life. <laughs> All right, uh, and so yeah, so we, we will uh, we will uh, we'll catch you all on uh, the next episode of Ambitious Crossover Attempt, and uh, next Wednesday here as well. And uh, you can also get all crossed out now on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, if you look at our show page on Call, and you got the links, but you could also just search for it on those uh, on those catchers to hear recordings of these as well. Uh, so thank you very much. Thank you, Jen. Thank and, you, Noam, uh, and thank you everybody for showing up. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna play ourselves out here. Have a good night, everyone. Bye. Good night. Bye.